0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a
1: month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
2: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description.
4: Welcome back to that podcast where we feel the pull of wanderlust and travel the world with our imaginations and also sometimes our feet. In the first part of this episode, we reflected on the flights of fancy that people have been going on in their minds while locked in place at home. We talked about the beauty of the British countryside and about how getting in touch with nature can have a positive impact on mental health. We actually ended part one on a pretty hopeful note, which is rare for the pando. But now, I'm afraid, it's time to interrogate some of the darker and more difficult aspects of this episode. So buckle up, and welcome to Act 2, where we still have feet. Now, we can't talk about travel and movement in the pandemic without acknowledging that for some people, it's not a choice. There are people genuinely displaced from unsafe homes who are seeking refuge and asylum. Somehow, what with Covid, it can seem wild that other world events haven't just stopped and made way for this bigger global catastrophe. But it turns out international crises haven't hit the pause button, leading people from all over the world to take dangerous journeys, made all the more challenging by the pandemic to safer shores. So here, with some insight on that, and with an extraordinary story about true events, is a piece by Dina Nayeri, the novelist behind The Ungrateful Refugee. Now, a brief note on this piece. It is based on a true story, but the writer has changed some details, particularly travel details, to protect people's identities, and because, as she puts it, it's a dangerous story and one that's not mine to tell. And there are a lot of people out there who think borders are drawn based on some kind of worth. So there's fiction here, and yet every word is the truth.
5: Just go outside for 10 minutes.
2: Sam has been begging me to go for a walk every day for a year now. It started with the first lockdown, when we lived in Paris, and going out meant presenting yourself, complete with photo ID, time of departure and destination to barely pubescent police officers, with guns as big as their thighs. I guess you could say I was triggered, having escaped the Islamic Republic during the war years from under the nose of the moral police. After a while, though, the fear of police turned into full-on hermitage. And now here we are, 12 months later, safe in Sam's childhood village in France, lucky, well-fed, close to nature, and I continue to trap myself indoors. What's the point? I have nowhere to go. He just stares at me. I don't mean a shop or a restaurant or a job. I mean life. What was the point? if there is nowhere that I'm urgently, deliberately going. Wanna hear a story from Katsuka's camp? I do this mostly to keep him from starting his work day and leaving me with my lukewarm coffee. It's about a girl who has no place to go and goes anyway.
5: Let me guess, is the girl you? What,
2: I just told you. Katsikas is a refugee camp in mainland Greece. Basically, it's a field of shipping crates turned into single-family or four-man shared homes. I visited there in 2018 and 19. I hadn't set foot in a refugee camp since I lived in one as a child. So Katsikas, with its bustling population of native Farsi speakers, like me, seemed a good way to revisit my past. And it has charities on the ground who understand something of the shame and indignities of displacement where other charities throw food and clothes at refugees from the back of trucks. Refugee Support designed beautiful stores for them and gave them points to spend as they liked. And Second Tree made a community for the children, a school with language lessons, activities, and a way of looking beyond this purgatory to a future teeming with life and possibility. One day, I met a girl there, 12-year-old Halima. We got talking. She asked me about Harvard, the things I studied after I stopped being a refugee. Halima had two sisters, two brothers, and both her parents. In that way, she was lucky. Many others had lost a parent or a grandparent or a brother or sister along the way. But this family was intact, and Halima, as their eldest child, made it a point to care for them. On her first day in camp, she marched right into Second Tree and signed herself up for every activity.
3: So, I take this off?
2: Halima spoke hesitant English, pointing to her headscarf.
3: Um,
1: L'azemnis.
2: Filippo, the kind Italian director, did his best to respond in halting Farsi. Halima beamed and yanked it off her head. She ran a finger through her thick black mane. Then she pointed to a football behind
6: Filippo. I can play with that?
1: The football? That's what it's for.
3: A real game? With boys?
1: Anyone who can kick a ball can play. My mama used to beat all the men at football.
3: Where's your mama?
1: In Italia. Very close to here. I see her every month.
3: I must. Learning English.
1: No problem. English classes are in the morning.
3: On Deutsch?
1: (laughs) Maybe just uh, one
2: at a time.
3: Oh. Okay. What's the age for driving a car?
2: (laughs) She took every class. She played football and sprinted and tried ping-pong. Academically, she was stellar. Then a pandemic came. Then lockdowns, but not the kind everybody else had. This was a special targeted lockdown. In the offices of Second Tree, the news was grim.
1: Uh, And how do we teach? Uh, By Zoom?
2: The Wi-Fi is too
7: weak for that.
1: So what? Just cancel everything? If we can't go inside the camp...
7: It affects everything. No
1: sports, no games, nothing. What are they locking down exactly? The the Greek locals are allowed to be out. Look at the restaurants, the bars.
7: The rule is just for here, the camp, because it's overcrowded. They have to stay in their containers.
1: So they're using COVID to shove their faces in the dirt. Again.
2: Yep. Though there were no cases of illness in the camp... The refugees were shut up in tiny shipping crates, watched by police, their restrictions much harsher than the nearby village. They could only go out ten at a time from the camp, a rule equivalent to telling neighborhoods that they had to coordinate food shopping with their neighbors. The refugees had a curfew and were questioned if they strolled outside their shipping crates, spaces that were hardly big enough for families of four to breathe. Then, Filippo had an idea.
1: We are Greek residents. So? So, we can go walk around. We can go to work. We can be on public ground.
7: You mean we can hang out outside the camp? Exactly. They set up a table just outside the
2: gates of the camp, on a dirt road with a few cars, some muddy puddles, and just enough room for a folding table and some chairs. Now the children could come to them, but still only a few at a time. One morning, Halima arrived with her face covered in
3: tears nobody is coming
1: who is not coming sweetie
3: nobody is coming to help Oh, free us we've been running since i was nine and now we are going to die in that coffin oh darling i hate that you can't come inside anymore
1: come let's do some math hmm?
3: what's that
1: oh that's a postcard for my mama
3: is this her dress yes where is this town
1: Eastern Italy, back of the boot. Come on, let's do some math.
3: Can it be something hard this time?
1: How about a logic
3: grid? Fine. (laughs) How many variables?
2: The virus didn't enter the camp by itself. It was brought in. Sixty-four new arrivals from the islands were moving into the already full camp. Halima overheard her parents whispering about it.
7: Are they being tested?
5: Of course not. You think they care?
7: But there are no cases here. Shouldn't they try to keep it?
1: I'm here to tell you that starting tomorrow, you'll share this crate with another family. What? Seven people already live here in one bed. I'm sorry. This is how it says to be.
2: That night, Halima's mother and father hung a huge bedsheet from the ceiling, cutting the shipping crate in two. The next morning, the other family arrived. Two girls, a mother, a father. The fathers shook hands. The two sets of sisters smiled shyly across the crate. The 11 residents of the shipping crate now sat staring at their dry hands until almost simultaneously, both mothers got up to cook dinner. That night, Halima's family huddled together in their bed.
3: What if I teach you German to pass the time?
2: From that night on, Halima taught her family German every hour, every day. A week passed. Other families were moved in and out of the shipping crates. At night, they heard tears and fighting outside. Then someone came down with COVID. Then a whole family. Then two families. After a month, Halima's siblings had learned most of her German workbook. Her mother spoke slowly, but her grammar was precise. Back home, she was the bookish one. Her father had some trouble with the accent, but was grateful for the guttural sound that German shares with Farsi.
5: Mm. At least we have an advantage over English speakers.
2: Uh,
7: English speakers don't need to learn German.
2: Then one night, Halima showed her family a website about a town in Germany where many Afghans had gathered.
7: Let's go there.
2: Someday.
7: No, let's just go.
3: Let's get up and leave. We're not prisoners.
5: <laughs> We're not allowed to go to Germany. And anyway, who can get on a plane now? With the testing and the wait times. Seven Covid tests.
7: They're not allowed to hold us prisoner. Refugees
3: can be tourists in Europe.
5: But not now. There is no travel in a lockdown.
3: Walking is allowed. Unbiking. Ferries are open.
2: Halima's sister groaned and said she felt like a trapped rat. It's
5: a plague. We're all trapped rats. What do you want?
3: I want to go. We can't go out, Assisam. We can walk to a ferry and along beaches. See?
2: She showed her family a map of a footpath along the coast, past Ioannina, then a ferry to the bootheel of Italy. After that, Germany and the village with many families from home, a place to start again. Her father stared. Outside, frustrated passers-by banged on the shipping crate so that everything shook and the sound reverberated like gunfire.
5: Well, imagine that. We still have our
2: feet.
7: And we speak decent German.
2: And if you asked her siblings, anything was better than here.
7: Rotting in a little jail, waiting for the virus to come.
2: Halima's younger brother worried that the pandemic police would stop them.
3: We'll walk at night. We'll stay away from everyone.
2: And what if they got sent back? We'll
7: think of something.
2: By midnight, the family across the shipping crate were fast asleep. Halima's mother woke the children one by one, and they slipped out holding their shoes in their hands, their masks muffling their nervous breath. They tiptoed past the rows of shipping crates, past the empty guard station and down the dirt road leading from the camp and the funny sign that read, Katsika's Hospitality Centre.
7: Bye-bye
3: waiting place.
2: By the time Filippo and the guards and the second tree staff woke up and heard the news, the family had vanished. On the road, they talked of German universities choosing each child's major. Wait,
5: wait, wait. Stop conflating your own obsessions, please.
2: Oh. <laughs> Is it so hard to believe that more than one Farsi family is obsessed with university?
5: (laughs) They didn't talk about universities.
2: Everyone who has ever had the leaving a refugee camp conversation, raise your hands. Oh, just me?
5: So, what happened to them?
2: They found somewhere to go. After a long time of walking and a lot of help from strangers and dozens of hard nights in cramped places and suspicious glances from Europeans...
5: Didn't they have trouble on the ferry?
2: It's a tourist ferry, not a dinghy across the Aegean. They paid the fare.
5: So if it's legal, why didn't they take a flight to Italy?
2: Most people who escape a camp do that. It's cheaper if you're going to northern Italy. But there was the pandemic. Plus, they had reason to be in southern Italy. (laughs) By the time they reached Italy, they were exhausted. The children were hungry, dirty. They had been walking every night for a week to a ferry station, then six hours on a boat and more roads.
7: Maybe we should have flown to the north.
5: Can we stop worrying? Italians never worry. When we're Germans, we can wring our hands until they're good and great.
3: It's just another 20 hours to barry.
5: What's in barry?
3: Filippo's mother, she's expecting us.
5: Are you being a smart mouth? Nope, you're making this up.
3: I'm not. I'm not. You should have some faith
2: and good people. Honestly, the things that impress you. (sighs) Sometimes I wonder how you'll
3: survive in this world.
4: That was Dina Nayeri's We Still Have Our Feet. Dina who is still in touch with that family, assures us that they're doing well. Stories about migration aren't just about departures, they're about arrivals too. What's the experience for those asylum seekers, for example, who make it to our green and pleasant land? I'm afraid that it's not always pleasant. There's been the ongoing news story this year that maybe you've been following about how the Home Office have been housing refugees in shoddily repurposed old military camps. There were all sorts of concerns around COVID safety in these overpopulated barracks, but screw that, because more urgently, one of them, Napier Barracks, burst into flames. There's an ongoing court case about who might have started the fire, but the real story here for me is about what happened next. Asylum seekers there reported electricity and hot water outages since the place caught fire, because, you know, obviously. But the Home Office's response, according to internal documents, was to worry that housing these individuals in more generous accommodation would be bad optics that would, quote, undermine public confidence in the asylum system. It is so often these places that are supposed to be shelters from the storm, refugee camps abroad or asylum seeker accommodation here, that have been some of the hardest hit by the pandemic. So I spoke to MD Muminal Hamid a human rights ambassador and community advocate and also an asylum seeker himself about what his experience has been through the pandemic. As an asylum seeker, MD gets by on a weekly government allowance of 37 quid. He's not allowed to earn anything in addition. He even waived his fee for this podcast, instead asking us to donate the money to the food bank that he runs. Yeah, you heard right. Despite or maybe because of, the fact that he knows firsthand what it's like to try and make ends meet in this crazy time. He spent his days in this last year starting up a food bank. Oh, by the way, he's also getting a law degree on a scholarship, so of course I had to chat to this amazing guy. I just want to uh, do some obligatory pandemic small talk. Mm-hmm. How has your pandemic been? Well, pandemic was something
8: which is always in my daily life. Sure. Like a challenge for me. Um, yeah uncertain life for everyone. But this kind of life I'm
4: living since 2018. Just to give everyone a bit of background, that's when you came here and your immigration status has been uncertain since 2018.
8: Yes, it's um, the uh, end of 2017. In December, I have seeking asylum.
4: That must be a very tiring way to live.
8: I would really like to ask the questions to everyone instead of asking me because Everyone had that nice experience of COVID. So they might answer me what uncertainty is for their life. That getting that feedback from them, I can tell them that what I'm going through prolonged period of time in my daily life.
4: I think one of the things that a lot of us are hoping is that we all come out of the pandemic with more willingness to empathise with how people are living. And I think that's a really interesting point Because anyone seeking asylum, they're written about in a certain way and they're talked about in a certain way in the press. And I think people get away from the human stories around this and that there are people whose lives are being affected by these kind of conversations. So I just want to ask briefly, MD, if you wouldn't mind just telling us your background and how you came to be in this situation at the moment.
8: While we are doing this recording, you may see my profile picture it says <laughs> compassion. So, this is what, and as an asylum seeker, we really urge from everyone. I came to UK in two thousand nine when I was a teenager, as a student. And by the time it was my mum who was behind all these scenes. She was a school head teacher in Bangladesh. The money she has gathered in her whole life by doing teaching professions. She wanted me to pursue my education in the UK. And by the time in 2010, we found out my mother inherited cancer. So the means of my education has fallen apart straightway because the money we have saved has to be used for her cancer treatment in Bangladesh straightway. And it's very hugely expensive. It's not free like NHS here. I love my mom. She was my everything, my teacher, my philosopher, I could say. So I had to leave my education. I dropped out from my college in London. I became an overstayer and kept doing jobs and supporting my mum. you know, uh, send her money to be survived because getting that 30, 40 pounds a month from her salary... It was not enough to continue the cancer treatment and my dad was retired. So I stayed in the UK until 2015 and in one occasion I was being caught and then I was being told by the authorities you have to leave this country and there was some political problem. I couldn't really go back to Bangladesh. And with due respect, I left this country and I went to Portugal because one of my friends used to live in Portugal, who was my school friend. But surprisingly, um, in, in some point of my life in Portugal, I got married with a British national who was from UK. And it was a family arranged marriage. And I had a son who was born in 2016, December. But my life turned into the hell that, I didn't know my ex-in-laws were after my wealth and everything in back home. And my status was cancelled suddenly in Portugal. I didn't saw my son when he was born in England. So it was so many complexions. I had a suicidal thought in Portugal. They brought me in France in 2016, my ex-in-laws. They extorted a lot of money from my parents. I had got a, a elder brother, younger sister they haven't got any son. So my son is the only descendant of my family. So my parents was ready to do anything for him. Mm. And because I haven't seen him, I was deceived to listen to whatever my ex-in-law says. I had a very tough life in France for three months. But when I was trafficked in this country, my ex-father-in-law received me. By the moment I came to my see my son, I was so happy. Very next day, all my documents which I sent before I was trafficked here to England in my ex-in-law's house, all was being confiscated, even my mobile phone and everything. And I was being told to do whatever they want me to do. Otherwise, they will put me in immigration or they will call the police so I'll lose the chance to see my son. And luckily, I had a friend when I was in uh, London before. He was a district city councillor in Worcestershire I managed to call him using cordless phone of the restaurant from the toilet, telling him that, look, this is what is happening. I'm trapped. Um, I had my friend to help me. So he got in touch with Modern Day Slavery Helpline, which is UK has got. In one morning occasions, I was being sort of assaulted by my ex-wife. I was bleeding. I called the Modern Day Slavery Helpline. Then I was being rescued by the police. And I had to leave my son behind who was only a year and some months old. And some people sometimes ask me, why don't you go back? I just gave them this question that, will you leave your children like this? And if your children is living somewhere in the world, will you stay or will you want to go there? I remember that 25 hours inside a box, inside a dark box in a lorry from France to Belgium, then Belgium to here. I couldn't see anything when I got out of that lorry for the next 10 15 minutes. Everything was dark on, on my side. So I, I took that risk for whom that little man who can be with his dad, who can get a proper life. He's a British national, to
4: be honest. Listen, I, I just want to say, first of all, thank you, MD, for sharing that story with us because I can't imagine how difficult that is to have to relive. And I do you think it is really important that people engage with why somebody seeks asylum the human reasons because it is the most relatable thing in the world the idea of wanting to protect your mother the idea of wanting to protect your son that is something that we should all be able to empathize with and relate to but moving on from that to what you're doing at the moment given everything that you've been through all of those circumstances given the uncertainty around your immigration status i have to be honest with you md a lot of us would be completely forgiving of you if you did nothing but just stayed in bed all day. You would be more than entitled to do absolutely nothing. But I want to talk about what you're doing at the moment in terms of this food bank project. So
6: yeah,
4: it's an incredibly inspiring and wonderful thing that you've done. So let's start by talking about what it is and where you got the idea from. In 2018, after I was rescued and
8: putting a rehabilitation centre with all this trauma, I was thinking to go back to education. All right, mm-hmm. so I applied for uh, higher education. I managed to uh, impress Newcastle University and Northumbria's giving scholarship in mm-hmm. 2019. Now I'm studying LLB law. The first year I involved myself with so many other organizations around me. So I'm really correlated related to the community like mm-hmm. I work for fire service as a volunteer for citizen advice. I'm the first trustee in an organization called Wasting Refugee Service in the whole 21-year history, uh, like asylum seeker trustee. I'm the first asylum seeker volunteer in citizen advice. Uh, when the coronavirus stuff uh, started, mm-hmm. I realized that there will be a problem coming up for people like me because we live in £37 pounds a week, which is very limited amount. Because yeah. when I came to Newcastle, I was first dispersed I didn't have any food for the first two days. I was being given five pounds for each day. So you don't have any things to cook. I mean, if you go to supermarket, even if you buy a very basic things, can you buy f- uh, with five pounds everything you need to cooking? For cooking rice, curries, you need so many ingredients, isn't it? And if you go to chicken shop, let's say, they'll give you maybe six chicken pieces and cheese yeah. for five pounds. Can you survive with that money? This is what exactly what I get every day for daily allowances, okay? You need some toothpaste, you need soaps and all other things, isn't yeah. it? And food is one of the basic things. When mm. I was a victim of slavery and I was enslaved, I used to get once a day food. I know the
4: meaning of food. So I started doing that food packs. You've had this idea that you want to deliver these food packs. you started working on making that happen. And then after three weeks of being told we should still shake hands with everybody and herd immunity and all this crap, Boris Johnson reverses the government's policy and very suddenly we're in a situation where we're facing a lockdown and then a couple of days later the entire country shuts. What does that do to your planning and the situation you were in?
8: It was uh, very intense. That night I will never forget because I was outside with my bike until 2 o'clock in the morning delivering food packs. And whatever I had, I managed to give it to them. I had to sanitise every single item. It's not really easy in a bicycle. Yeah. Bearing in mind that PTSD and trauma I had in my slavery when I was enslaved and trafficking has given me thyroid problem, but that didn't stop me to do that. I can work
4: probably half an hour, then I have to sit down on the street away. But I haven't stopped. One of the things about these food packages is you're delivering them to asylum seekers and also... Yes. To elderly people who live within the communities in Newcastle, right? Yes. That's incredible. Do you feel part of the community in Newcastle? Because it's an amazing part of the UK. Are you starting to feel at home, or is that something that you don't get the luxury of being able to feel because of your unsettled immigration status?
8: I mean, it goes on a both way. I mean, I used to drop some food packs to someone's house who used to distribute it to the other asylum seekers, okay? Mm. Next to his door, there was a printed poster saying that I'm self-isolating myself. Please knock on to my door. I'm very helpless. So what I did in uh, very next week, I took one extra food bag, all right, mm. and I left to his door. I got a message after dropping that food bag to that house in the very afternoon. Thank you so much for dropping the food bag. I didn't know that someone is so kind to drop food bag for me like this, all right. Just to give you a quick uh, overview, that guy's house was full of posters on her windows, and uh, I'm not being political here, but... The posters were expressing maybe
4: an anti-immigration sentiment. Yeah, yeah, possibly. exactly.
8: Yeah. All right? You can imagine he's a proper English guy, all right? Sure, yeah. All mm-hmm. the posters about all these things on his third week, fourth week, fifth week, none of the posters left on his window anymore. Yeah. And. The message I got from him later on, he also gave me a card I wish I could show to everyone. Thank you, Mr. Charity. Um, (laughs) So he, he told that you have changed my perspective, Andy, to the community that we can all be together and help each other. This is the way you change someone's perspective. That makes me feel I'm really close to the community. But sometimes, I'm going on the other side now, just a month ago, I was being told, are you an illegal alien in Newcastle? I was being uh, harassed in the street, and I was being told, why don't you go back? That really hurts me. I have answers for all those questions, though, but judgmental sentiment from the people sometimes hurts me a lot. That I'm trying my best to give to the community, being getting that little amount of money. I'm serving my community I'm I'm really grateful whatever I'm getting, that scholarship I'm studying on. You're giving me somewhere to stay. You're giving me money to live on. You're giving me the opportunity to see that little man who I have Mm -hmm. is four years old now. I'm really grateful. But sometimes those questions really hurts me. But overall, I would say be positive, be compassionate and be there for your community and your people. Something good will happen in return. And this has always happened to me that's a really beautiful sentiment i want to keep my mom's last word i lost my mom in 2019 i she so couldn't sorry. be there for me because i couldn't support her anymore she told me last two words the sun be there for people be there for your community something good will happen in return i always follow this in my mind because i used to see that students used to come to my mom's our house midnight like 3 or 4 o'clock at night if you know about indian subcontinent that the education is not free. You have to pay exam fees to the Mm. schools. My mom was a school head teacher in high school. Students used to come at midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock at night, knocking on my door, Madam, tomorrow is exam. Can you do something? I want to give the exam. I used to see my mom used to give those money from her own salary, saying to them that you are giving exam tomorrow. So I know that those kind of things help people a
4: lot. You can find out more about MD on his website, abirking.com. That's A-B-I-R-K-I-N-G com. He's also MD's Journey on YouTube. To learn about how to donate to his food bank, please check out our show notes. I feel genuinely privileged to have spoken with MD, but I also couldn't help but come away from that conversation feeling frustrated, angry and disappointed. MD even while still recovering from the trauma of human trafficking has proven to be a major force for good in Newcastle communities and he's pursuing a bloody law degree so that he can expand the reach of his positive impact and give mothers everywhere an excuse to point out that if he can get a law degree why can't you but even this guy this incredible man can't get his case processed and the pandemic is only making it worse The Home Office, in their statistics on asylum and protection, issued for year-ending September 2020, showed there was a record-high backlog of people awaiting an initial decision on their asylum case, with 76% waiting more than six months just for the first-round decision. There was already a substantial backlog before the pandemic, but now it's a lot worse. And it's not because there have been more people applying. On the contrary, 2020 saw an 8% drop in asylum claims. These kind of stories and these statistics really make me question who we are as a nation. But maybe more importantly, they make me question who we want to be as a nation. Even in a year where we've all, regardless of politics, acknowledged that immigration is a large part of what keeps the NHS going, the rhetoric around how we welcome migrants to our island hasn't changed. Of course, Brexit doesn't help. And while we still haven't had a proper reckoning with how all of this ties into colonial legacy and the British military presence abroad, it does feel like moving forward to a future when we can travel again, we've got some really big questions to answer around our collective identity and our place in the world.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
4: Which takes us to Act 3, where we try and figure out a vision for the future, no pressure. Wrestling with the question of Britain's identity crisis is definitely too big a job for one man. And it's definitely too big a job when that one man is this man. So, I went to the brilliant Professor Kehinde Andrews for help. Professor Andrews is an academic, activist and author who has recently published The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. As ever, in order to predict the future, sometimes you've got to understand the past. So hopefully, Kahinde can help us unpick the complicated history and mythology of Britain's identity, and wonder with me how it's all evolving.
9: Yeah, so I am a professor of black studies at Birmingham City University. Black studies is the only degree of its kind, and in general, I'm one of only 140 black professors in the country, uh, which means we can't all get on a plane together, just in case (laughs) case it's a disaster. (laughs) <laughs> and they were all wiped out. But yeah, I'm also an author. Uh, my latest book, The New Age of Empire, how uh, racism, colonialism still rule the world, just came out and made a lot of uh, people angry as well. Um, sort
4: of, yeah. yeah, it's a nice position for me to be in to finally be talking to someone who's wound up more people than me. How does that <laughs> feel to know that you've wound people up by the simple fact of you doing your job, right? you're a professor of black studies and you've written an academic book about empire and its relationship to britain and how modern british identity may be shaped by these gaps in our knowledge right
9: yeah 100 percent. i mean it is just my job but i used to get like like i used to because you get so much abuse and stuff from people but now i actually quite enjoy it and if i I don't (laughs) get abuse i I get like i didn't do something right i've done something wrong (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, me and my 12-year-old daughter will go through some of the
4: comments and if you read them out in a whiny voice, it's it actually, it actually quite funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about your background, just how you ended up going into academia.
9: Uh, in all honesty, when I did my undergraduate, I went to the University of Bath, or Bath, I think yes. you, you meant to say. The whitest place I've ever been.
4: What were you studying?
9: Psychology. But the only reason I went was because I got to go to America in the third year. Okay. And I was studied at Harvard Graduate School of Education. That's where I found black psychology, which is just completely different, mind-blowingly different. And that was when I said, actually, no, this is interesting. Can I bring some of this stuff
4: into the university? Because before that, it was the university's white. I can't do any of the black stuff that I want to do in this space. So The theme of this episode is wanderlust and travel. And we want to talk about this idea of travel as being something that can expand your horizons and change your perspective. And I mean, I don't know that we've had as specific... A literal example of that happening as you literally going to america and suddenly understanding
9: yeah i mean it was if i hadn't gone to the states there's no way absolutely zero possibility i'll be here because the big difference of the states in the uk is that america is just a racist project from its beginnings like it's like <laughs> this is what it is like from start to finish um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. which meant it's had to deal with racism for centuries so like my family's yeah. caribbean And Britain still thinks of itself as being the country that abolished slavery somehow. But it's because slavery is in the Caribbean. It feels distant. It feels far away. And so because you have a much bigger black population in America and it's hundreds of years and you have activism and struggle, there's had to be a bit more space. Like America's not perfect. But if you look yeah. at the universities, there's just a lot more space for these kind of discussions and radical ideas coming into the space. And again, it's not perfect, but it just offered a blueprint that I honestly could never have experienced here. And so, yeah, that travel was absolutely important. And even before I went to uni, I did like a gap year. I'm going sound really middle class. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> But it was with voluntary service overseas. Couldn't pay yourself. You had to fundraise £500. Pound. And then with that, you got to go to... I went to South Africa for three months. Oh,
4: wow. And
9: and Wrexham for three months, <laughs> <laughs> more
1: places. <laughs> Which, <I don't>
4: know. <laughs> was... In terms of social class, one thing cancelled out each other. I think you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you did a gap year, <laughs> yeah. but you did it in Wrexham.
9: <laughs> yeah, the project was a partnership, so there were ten British people and ten Black South Africans. We all partnered up with somebody, and then we went to Wrexham for three months. We worked in a primary school, right. um, and then we did the return. We went to South Africa all together, and we were in a village two hours
4: away from Johannesburg, and we were. Building a school, doing much more useful stuff, right? What does that do for you? You're 18 years old, growing up in Birmingham. In the UK, there's issues and there's
9: problems. When you go to somewhere like South Africa, you're like, wow, this is a different level. And even then, it was 2002, I think we went to South Africa. And um, apartheid was supposed to end, but
4: it clearly hadn't. So that really changed a lot of the way I thought. I want to just talk about Britain as a nation and the (laughs) way we see ourselves. And how much you think our national identity is based on gaps in knowledge? It's
9: not even just gaps. If you think about the knowledge in which British identity is based on, it's just lies. Like, it's not even missing. It's just an actual complete distortion and misrepresentation. So the idea that Britain is the country that abolished slavery, that's a quote from David Cameron, right? When he's yeah. defending the Union in the in Scottish independence. We're yeah. the country that abolished slavery, that beat the Germans, etc. All this nonsense. Like, Britain has this kind of exceptional role of being this positive industrial progressive force in the world and just missing out in all of that how do you talk about the british empire and not talk about slavery not talk about colonialism talk about india not about africa i mean the biggest problem that you basically have in britain is that it's pretended the island this kind of narrow island the people who live on it have been the only people who've contributed when actually britain was an empire yeah. so for instance when i go on tv every time somebody will say you should be grateful you know my granddad fought in the war well, all of yeah. our family would contribute to the war. <laughs> so what are you talking yeah. about? Like, you just don't understand what the empire of the war was, right? And I think that's the big thing for me is that there is this idea that it's white, that it's the island and you just missed out the fact that there was more British people, far more British people in Asia, Africa and the Caribbean than there ever were on the actual island and those contributions are just totally dismissed even today.
4: Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, is travel a way to resolve that? Do you think now that there is still some value in people going out and seeing bits of the world and bringing some of that awareness back. If you travel to... Like, I have been going to India since I was a little kid because half my family is still there. But if you travel with purpose and you go and look around, there's, like, bits of the Red Fort in Delhi where there were gaps in some of the artworks that are on the walls where British soldiers literally grabbed jewellery out of the wall (laughs) on their way out. And you can still see the holes and the marks in it My dad's great uncle had bullet holes in his shoulder from British troops firing on him. And the thing is, Mm. if you do travel with purpose, you actually see that it's not ancient history. It's still relevant and it still has such an important bearing on, you know, so many problems in the world. Like I was listening to a podcast about Iraq and the lead up Mm. to the Iraq war. And like, you know, it's embarrassing to admit this, but I don't think I even realised that like Iraq was just a country that Western powers just drew on a map after yeah. the First World War. Like, yeah. you're now in a situation where you have a Shia majority but run by Sunnis, and yeah. that only happened because a yeah. British arsehole just started going nuts yeah. with a pencil.
9: I think it's really interesting because one of the things in the book is I tried to name as many countries as possible to stress that this is a global system, not a national system. Or going to Jamaica, like my dad's from Jamaica, my dad's retired there, and you have this image of Jamaica, it's this is paradise, etc., if you do the tourist, right? If you get on the plane, you get driven to a hotel, it's on the beach, you never leave yeah. because they're bringing culture to you. Every night you have like a limbo dance or something like that. And one of the things that shocked me, so when I was in Jamaica last time, in the grill, which is a really popular tourist destination, you walk down the street in the grill, it's a ghost town. There is nobody on the street. There's thousands of people there. <laughs> they're just all on the beaches. And there's poor people who live in the hills. But right. if you actually walk through the town, it's ghost, empty, completely empty. I'm like, this is madness if you go and travel and just experience a tourist you don't really experience it and actually what that does is it actually makes your understanding of Britain worse because you're really disconnected yeah. and one of the things which really struck me was how they use plantation sites in Jamaica so there's an old slave plantation called Rose Hall in Montego Bay which is awful one of the most notorious sites of slavery and it's just like a house you could just talk people get married people get married wow. on slave plantations like black people get married <laughs> I'm like what? <laughs> <laughs> There's a hotel in Harare. I have to actually look this up, where they've kept the slave cabins because usually they just destroy them, but they've turned the slave cabins into like five star hotel. Basically. so no. you can literally go and sleep in a slave cabin. <laughs> like, God. what's going on? Yeah. So it's, yeah, sometimes travel's
4: bad. <laughs> <Like that kind laughs> <of> travel bad. <laughs> it's you know what? It's about time. Somebody on this podcast gave us a much-needed balance that not all travel is good. (laughs) But it's right. Like you say, these are global systems of white supremacy. And so when you travel, you are just moving within the arteries of this overall body of white supremacy. And so, yeah, it is easy to, like, whitewash stuff and make people feel like things are okay. What's the pathway towards dismantling this whitewashing of history that is so potent that it allows for travel without actually broadening your horizons at all <laughs> what's a like first step that we can take to start having a more open and honest conversation about british history
9: i think for britain the simple one is the british empire just has to be how do you go through i went from a whole entire school system and never talked about the british empire once that's the problem like right? even if you look at the way the school system is they've added things in optionally right like you can do this you can do that if you're honest, you shouldn't be able to understand Britain without understanding the British Empire. Because Britain still hasn't even gone. Like we talk about, it like I said, did it hasn't gone. The Queen's still the head of state of Jamaica. There are actual colonies. And the economic relationship is exactly the same. I mean, it hasn't changed in any meaningful way. But if Britain was serious about educating people, that would be the starting point. Actually, what was the empire? How did it work? How did it function? What happened? And this is one of the things I always push back about with black history, is there have been black people on these islands for a long, long time. But that's irrelevant. When my family were in the Caribbean, they were in Britain. Or when your family's in India, they were in Britain. It was was Britain. And if we had this much more expansive understanding of what Britain was and is, that would save a lot of problems. I mean, the thing about how that changes the immigration debate, like, we could stop having it for a (laughs) start.
4: (laughs) (laughs) The immigration debate, from my perspective, is as bad as it's ever been and as toxic as it's ever been. And I felt like Brexit was this moment where, like, all of the worst elements in the conversation about immigration, specifically, were completely emboldened.
9: You know, immigration has been getting worse and worse and worse and worse ever since the Second World War, right? So yeah. the reality of the British Empire meant that after you say like everybody has the right to come to England, is in the Empire. That means, look, you've opened it up to Africans, Asians, Caribbeans, which is why we came. But very yeah. quickly they realised. They didn't want that. They were like, you can come and work, but you're not supposed to stay. You're supposed to go home, right? That was very clearly the message, which is why Enoch Powell was all in favour of nurses coming from the Caribbean because he thought they'd depart. So what you see really quickly is in the 60s, you start to have legislation that says, no, 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 you can't stay. They separate out the old Commonwealth with the white parts of the the empire and the new commonwealth which is the black and brown parts independence happens i mean it's not coincidental that both jamaica and trinidad get independence in 1962 which is the same year that they make the commonwealth immigrants act which means that if you're from jamaica or trinidad you no longer have the right to come to england and if you just go on and on the 80s you have the law that says that if you're born in britain most people don't even know this if you're born in britain that does not give you any right to british citizenship because they took that away in the 80s because they didn't want people coming from the Caribbean or, or India having babies and then suddenly having claims, right? So even legally, the definition of Britishness just shifted because they wanted to keep us out, basically. And since then, you've just had these successive restrictions. So it's not a surprise at all that we got to the point where we're at now. Because this is from '60s onwards, there's been this really clear um, backsliding. And then, yeah, so Brexit in that sense was always inevitable. And then twinned with the massive rise in Islamophobia that doesn't help as well because you want to restrict immigration even more. Yeah. And this real strong resurgence of Britishness is whiteness. I mean, that is what you're being told again and again and again. And that's what all the laws are changing. I mean, I think the thing that's shifted, I think for me, is that people are realizing, particularly young people are realizing, the limits of what we've been doing over the last 40 years. So in some ways, like, we are in a very worse place. You look at the government, you look at the policy. yeah, Look at the sewer report. I mean, gee, look, at, look at all of this. Look at the rhetoric. Yeah. In some ways, it's worse, but that's actually better in some ways because then the response to that when you can see it and you can see what it looks like and you can see how bad it is and you can see the reactionary forces it means you have a response and the response has been the thing which i'd say is the positive thing i think that's going to give us the fuel to kind of push for the kind of changes we always needed i mean i think one of the things i always try to remind people is the west is relatively young it's only 200 years of real like white supremacy as like as a proper embedded thing across the world yeah And I think sometimes we forget that. We've just kind of been sold this lie that there's no alternative. This is all there is. Forget that. We can build something completely different. And I think this is a perfect reminder for that moment. So, yeah, we'll be fine because people always resist
4: and people always respond to their conditions. So, yeah, no, we'll be fine. Well, unpicking all of those issues is probably not something we're going to manage in one podcast or one lifetime or maybe ever. But at least we can start asking the questions. And since we're asking some big, fuck-off, massive questions... Let's move on to tackle the issue of climate change and how that old chestnut ties into all of this. I spoke to Luke Murphy, who's the head of the Environmental Justice Commission at the Institute for Public Policy Research and a fellow Croydon boy about whether the way we travel should and will change. So, I mean, the last year and a bit has been, and I believe this is a technical, scientific term, a fucking nightmare, right? (laughs) It's been an absolute shit show. Is the reduction in international flights, I think it's something like a 60% reduction in the emissions, is that the one silver lining to come out of the pandemic? Is it a good thing that we've been travelling less for the last year?
0: I think it has. And just beyond flights, it's car use as well. Like car use has dropped by about 70% since the start of the crisis, but it's obviously not the way that we would want to see change happen or to reduce emissions. I think I saw a headline or something the other day that said, you know, we would need a lockdown every two years or something in order to achieve the kind of reductions we need. But I don't think it's going to be a permanent thing because people want to go on holidays and people are going to go back to travel. It might have some impact. It's a bit hard to tell.
4: What does a policy look like?
0: that could help move towards reducing carbon emissions that isn't draconian? So people think if you kind of tax flying more, then you're just going to be pricing out low-income households. But actually, 70% of the flights are actually made by the wealthiest 15% of people. And they're taking more than three flights a year. So you could add something called a frequent flyer levy. So the more you fly, the more you pay in tax, which means that people who just want to take one holiday a year don't have to pay as much. And those that are travelling consistently might think twice. And that's one thing. That's come out of the pandemic using zoom and teleconferencing and stuff might become more common but there's also stopping aviation and airport expansion by 2050 which is the government's date for emissions to be at net zero aviation is set to be the largest emitting sector by that point unless we do something about it and also just encouraging alternatives as well so like the government seems to be talking about cutting domestic uh, passenger duty while, while also hiking Rail fares, Like, it should be the other way around. Like, we should be encouraging people to use trains, not flying. I have to um, put my cards on the
4: table and say, in many ways, I'm sure I'm absolutely part of the problem. I'm a stand-up comedian and I've done travel shows, so I've flown all around the world. I have done comedy festivals in Australia and New Zealand. And yet the type of comedy I do is specifically designed to appeal to a kind of hand-wringing, <laughs> Guardian Easter audience, so like I, you know, I feel like I should declare an interest that in many ways I am, and again, another scientific term, the absolute worst. I just think that that statistic about flying is so interesting because I feel like when those of us who don't really know what we're talking about that like to gas on talk about climate emissions, we only focus on short-haul, low-cost airlines, and we don't think about the fact that most of the people do most of the flying aren't people who go to Spain
0: once a year. It's actually people like me. (laughs) I wouldn't want to put too much pressure on people. It's not just about individual behaviour change. You do need a government to support people to make different choices. There are reasons why electric vehicles are much more predominant in Norway, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's because the government provides much more investment in electric vehicle infrastructure, incentives for people to buy those cars. Like, unless you do that kind of stuff, people are not going to be able to make the changes. Also, like, low-income households who need to drive, for whatever reason, for work, aren't going to be able to move over and buy a, a more expensive EV unless the government helps them do that. What would you say would be three policy priorities that the government could pursue? Invest in cycling and walking infrastructure is big one so less than two percent of trips in this country are by bike compared to like nearly a quarter in the Netherlands secondly invest in more sustainable public transport um, electrifying rail you don't have to go that far north to understand that the rail system and public transport system in the north of England is woefully uh, below like the quality in London so that's probably yeah. the second uh, and the third would be uh, a frequent flyer levy on flying and also stopping many more airport expansion as well I mean if you see things that are happening across parts of the continent of Africa,
4: if you look at the bushfires in Australia, there are parts of the world where you can see very clearly what climate change means and what the climate crisis looks like. In a country like Britain, where its effects are either far away or potentially more abstracted,
0: how do you make the average British voter concerned about the climate crisis? The positive thing is that a vast majority of people from all backgrounds and all across the country of all ages are actually concerned about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. But the problem at the moment is about the degree of priority that people put on it. So seven or eight in ten people are concerned about the climate crisis, but actually a lot of people are more concerned about whether they're going to be able to put food on the table or hold down a job. And I think for us, and this is the work we've been doing as part of our commission, we've been holding these citizens' juries around the country where you just go and talk to a random selection of people that are demographically representative of certain areas and asking them what a fair response to the climate and nature crisis actually looks like. And they want to see job opportunities created. They want to see poverty reduced. And you can do all of these things through climate action. We've found that you could create 1.6 million jobs between now and 2030. You can reduce fuel poverty if you retrofit people's homes. People are going to be healthier if there's more cycling and walking. There's tons of benefits to this. So I do think it's about focusing on those opportunities and maybe sometimes talking a bit less about the number of climate emissions are going to be reduced, which, as you just said, is a bit abstract. And actually talking about the benefits it's going to make to people's everyday lives, of which there are many. What's a job that is created by trying to resolve the climate crisis for example you mean other than the ones that think tanks
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. other than think tank employees yeah. <laughs> and
0: left-wing comedians this there's loads i mean retrofit of homes installing heat pumps which is something we need to do to reduce carbon emissions from housing building electric vehicles installing electric vehicle infrastructure tree planting the reuse and repackaging of old goods and recycling units in new so across every sector there's tons of jobs of a mixture of skilled levels as well that can be created but it does need a concerted skills strategy and an industrial strategy from the government in order to deliver that because it's not going to happen on its own. Yes people care about climate change in the abstract but it's how it's going to affect their everyday lives that matters and again going back to this work we've been doing with these jurors around the country like they have like a really strong connection to nature for example so they really care about how much green space they've got access to and that's really accentuated as a result of covid because people want access whether they've got a back garden or not it's just they want to be able to go to a local park and obviously not everyone has access to that so it's thinking about the frames that most appeal to people when you're talking about these issues and i think it's talking about nature it's talking about the job opportunities and all the benefits that it can bring and that helps build public support. I feel very energized and optimistic now. <laughs> I certainly did not
4: feel that at 11:45 this morning. Do you feel optimistic about the world that we're going back into because there's a lot of talk about getting back to normal. But I feel like there should be this sense of like could we not improve what normal is? Could we not make normal a little bit better for people? Do you feel a sense of hope that we might have learned some positive
0: lessons from this experience. I do. What gives me hope is the capacity of people and the desire that I've seen in the work we've done for change from people across the country. But check my optimism. I can feel your energy but, and I want yeah. you to not let me get to. <laughs> we live within a kind of economic system that is extractive, that is still resulting in the environmental breakdown and over-resource use and tons of climate emissions. And unfortunately, emissions are bouncing back, old behaviours are coming back. You know, people are scared about travelling on public transport. More people are using their cars than before. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be hopeful, but we need to recognise that actually we need to do something actively different in order to deliver on what the things that people have realised matter more to them. But that does mean the government has to do something different. And at the moment, I wouldn't say that the phrase "build back better. I don't think we're, like, about to realise that. It's almost as if it means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost
4: as if it's absolute or shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you would say your mood is qualified
0: optimism? Yeah, qualified optimism, yeah. (laughs) Pragmatic optimism, how boring, yeah.
4: (laughs) Do you think people who are working in climate change may be a little bit more cognizant about conversations around race and class in conjunction with
0: conversations about climate change it's definitely not the most diverse movement that it could or should be but i think increasingly people recognize that climate justice is only achievable if we achieve racial justice as well you know some of the work we've done has shown that those on the lowest incomes both in the uk and abroad and black and ethnic minority communities are both the least responsible for climate change but also Mm. face the sharp end of the impact so like living in areas where high air pollution is highest this may be too complicated a question for you to answer
4: now But is responsible climate policy fundamentally incompatible with free market capitalism? Do you think that the way that we run our economy and the way that we have run our economy since the early 80s is fundamentally incompatible with a responsible climate policy? Yes. Sorry, just stop there. There we go. No, perfect. (laughs) That's...
0: That's absolutely perfect. I love a big question that receives a short answer. We would certainly argue you need a kind of whole systems change, you need a transformation of the way in which we run the economy, not focused on things like gross domestic product GDP, growth every budget, we should be focusing on people's quality of life. And well-being, not least because you know we've seen over the last twenty years on the economic and social side, wages have totally disconnected from growth. So when the economy grows and everyone cheers and the press gets really excited and the chancellor weighs around the budget and all the rest of it, actually that growth isn't benefiting a big proportion of the country, and those on the lowest wages have just seen cuts in their pay year on year on year. And at the same time, we've been destroying our environment in order to deliver ever greater benefits to the wealthiest. And we would definitely argue that you need a transformation in the way in which we run the economy, both in its goals and objectives, in order to deliver for the climate and also economic and social justice as well.
6: I founded a community called Love Her Wild which is a women's adventure community and we decided to do this huge adventure which was called the Women's End-to-End Relay and it was a hiking relay that would have stretched the length of the UK from Land's End to John O'Groats. We had 800 women signed up who were going to help carry the baton and we were doing this to raise money for the Woodland Trust. Then, obviously, COVID hit and we got put into a lockdown, so we had to cancel. Really, it was maybe like two weeks' notice before the event was meant to happen. So I was actually pregnant at the time, and this was this huge project that I'd been working on that was meant to happen before my baby came, and... There's definitely been a lot of adapting. I wouldn't recommend having a baby in a pandemic if it can be avoided. It's quite stressful and obviously we've not been allowed to see people and work has all been up in the air. But it's amazing, you just do adapt. I just remember in the beginning being so blindsided by like having to cancel the relay, realising my company, Love Her Wild, was going to be flattened completely and not knowing where money was going to come from and, you know, how we were going to manage with the baby. But you just cope. And really, it's the same kind of mentality you have if you go on adventures or do a big expedition. You just try not look at the bigger picture. You just look at the day ahead and taking small steps and just adapting and being flexible. I actually moved to a new area just before the first lockdown just to throw something else in that mad mix when COVID first hit and actually it's just been the most amazing way to get to know a new area because I discovered all these great walks on our doorstep, really got to know the community and the neighbours here and settled a bit and so um, yeah it's been wonderful just exploring and seeing what we have here in the UK because we are a really very diverse and beautiful island although it's easy to forget it.
4: Being outward looking can be glorious I'm so lucky to have travelled the world with Joel and done comedy gigs in Australia and India and New Zealand, but maybe there's something we can learn from Ginny and Luke about looking inward, about appreciating the beauty of what's right in front of us and doing what we can to protect it. Like Luke said in his vision for the future, and as we all learned the hard way this year, people deserve access to green spaces and decently paid jobs. We deserve more community and less air pollution government and us focusing on climate change can be a way to improve our quality of life and can create some jobs that hopefully might help pull us out of this economic crisis. Because don't forget, once we're through this pandemic nightmare, we'll still have an economic crisis to deal with. Fun times, so much to look forward to. But all the same, we're always going to want to travel. We can't help ourselves. We're curious. We like change. We like to roam. It's human nature. And maybe travelling and stepping out of our comfort zone also helps us get better at encountering each other, as MD would urge us to, with compassion. Look, at the end of the day, I don't know how things are gonna pan out after the pandemic. I'm not a wizard, I'll be the first to admit it. Maybe we'll come out of this period of extreme isolation with a renewed hunger to look abroad, with more empathy. Maybe we'll feel that actually we've been more unified than ever by world events that have touched us all. While our physical boundaries have become smaller, maybe our mental ones have expanded. Maybe realising that immigration is the lifeblood of our darling NHS has opened our minds to a more dynamic idea of society. Maybe hearing stories like MDs can make us more compassionate. On the other hand, maybe intolerance will be an easier sell than ever Because after years of anti-immigration rhetoric as a smokescreen to cover up the disastrous effects of a preventable financial crash and the devastating impacts of ensuing austerity policies, a bitterly divided society, less and less porous borders, and over a year of not going anywhere at all, maybe we're just going to really commit to being a stubbornly inward-looking nation. Or, as is more likely the case, some combination of the two. Let's see how it all pans out. All I know is that I can't wait to go travelling again, both in Britain and abroad. I can't wait for the gloriously cleansing experience of getting out of the house and shitting my pants on a mountain in Peru. And I really, really cannot wait for the humility of perspective. But until that time, buckle up and hold tight. It's been a bumpy ride, but we're almost through it. Thanks for coming on this audio journey with me and safe onward travels.
7: I was going to do the Scottish National Trail. I was going to do 542 miles. I am not the fittest person in the world. For me, it was about enjoying myself, taking the time to really look around me, discover the countryside and not kill myself, hopefully. So that was my plan. And then literally one week before I was due to set off is when we went into lockdown. I couldn't do it this year either up until just recently so my situation changed at work and I've got every other week off and I suddenly had this realization that I may not be able to do it all in one go but I can still do it and so (laughs) I said to my husband can you drop me off at the start point on Sunday and I'm going and it felt amazing to start it of course it was a little brutal but I really enjoyed it and it's just lovely to feel free and out there again and it, yeah was amazing part two of that podcast where we feel the pull of wanderlust and
3: travel the world with our imaginations and also sometimes our feet was hosted by Nish Kumar and featured M.D. Mominal Hamid, Kahinda Andrews, Luke Murphy and contributions from members of the public. We Still Have Our Feet was written by Dina Nayeri. Halima was played by Anissa Morad. Sam and Halima's father were played by Scott Corin. Maria and Halima's mother were played by Lisa Zara. Filippo was played by Philip Arditi and Dina was played by Natalie Armin. It was directed by Tinika Craig with sound design by Mike Winship. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Nish Kumar. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production.